Let's see. We're back. It's good to have you back. And uh, in God's sovereignty to read to us and teach us from Psalm 45 about the bride and the handsome husband. So we're blessed to have you guys back and hearing Charles Wesley's words. Um, Let's see if I could get my first slide. Is that doable, AV team? Um, This morning we begin a new season, typically for our church. The fall season and the school season really marks the launch of, or the relaunch of many of our ministries and gathering together and getting ready after the summer break. And uh, this morning we begin a new season in the life of our church as we come to, for us, a new book of the Bible. The first book and the first gospel of our New Testament. And from the beginning, from the beginning of the church really, and for the first 1800 years of church history, this book was unanimously held to be the first gospel and the first book in our New Testament, the first of four divinely inspired gospels in the New Testament. And it's believed that this was written somewhere around 50 or 60 AD, so 20 to 30 years after Jesus had been crucified and he rose from the grave, so fairly early on. And by the earliest church history accounts, it was written by Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector, the Jewish tax collector and sinner who had been called and chosen by Jesus regardless of his background, his sin, and his past. Really a testimony to the grace that we heard about last year. It's interesting to see who Jesus chose to be his disciples and his apostles. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to the best yeshivas or seminaries. He was in Galilee, which was considered to be the breadbasket, and maybe the country in the Hicksville, sort of, of Palestine. And he chose fishermen, and he chose blue-collar workers, and he also chose people who were outcasts from the synagogue and who were barred from worship. Matthew would have been barred from worship, In the synagogues, his name perhaps even removed from the list because of his occupation as a tax collector for the Roman government. Well, it's this same Matthew who Jesus comes to and says, follow me, and he leaves everything, including his table of money, and follows Jesus. And Jesus, among his disciples, chooses Matthew, also known as Levi, to not only become one of the twelve disciples, but after his death and resurrection to become one of the apostles one of the the 12 really apostles and one of the founders of the church. And as we read through his gospel, what comes through is very much Matthew seems to be writing to that brand new church, the church after Pentecost, a church that at this time is predominantly filled not with people who look like you and I, And not like people who look like they're in Rome, but really filled predominantly with Jewish believers. Jews from the first century who believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and converted and became followers of Jesus. And because of that were thrown out of the synagogue eventually and became that early church. It was predominantly Jewish. We, we tend to forget that a little bit because we've had so many hundreds of years of the church being predominantly filled with people from other races and other nations. But that early church was predominantly of Jewish background and origin, those who had been raised in the synagogue, in the sacrifices of the temple, and in the Jewish diaspora and Jewish community. But it was a Jewish community who had been saved by the power and the authority of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a Jewish community that had been given by Jesus and by the apostles the task to take the good news of Jesus Christ outside of the Jewish community and take it to the ends of the world and to every nation and every tongue and every people. And that's radical when you think about the history of the Old Testament and the Jewish people. The Old Testament was, if you wanted to know God, you need to come to us. You need to come to the temple. And even then, you're a second-class citizen in a separate portion of the temple in the courtroom of the, the Gentiles. But after Jesus' resurrection, 
These followers of Jesus had a completely new beginning. And it was their call and their commission to take the good news out into the world. And that includes into the areas of Asia, where many of us come from. And as we consider these things, and really the legacy in which we stand, it's for this reason that Matthew's gospel really formed, in many ways, the foundation of the early church, the foundation of the New Testament, and the foundation of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, Matthew's gospel really formed the foundation of that. Could I have my next slide, please? Now, I'm going to walk through this with you briefly. It's just to give you a little bit of introduction and background to the gospel before we jump in. But for the first three centuries in church history, the unanimous testimony of the church was that this first book of the New Testament was written by Matthew. And there's a list of many of the church fathers uh, who all testified that this is a gospel that comes from Matthew, the tax collector's pen. And one of the quotes that comes from Papias, who lived from 60 to 130 AD, and he was a bishop in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey area, and he was a companion of Polycarp. So he was someone who came up under the apostles. He was someone who heard their disciples and listened to them. And he writes, Matthew also, among the Hebrews, published a written gospel in their own dialect. Now, own dialect can mean two things. It can mean in Aramaic, because Hebrew was getting to become a dead language at that time. But it could also mean in Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the universal language and tongue of the Roman Empire. And so when they're talking about dialect, it can also mean that Matthew wrote this gospel for everyone, but he did so in a style with idioms and phrases and in a format that was understandable to those of a Jewish origin. And when you read Matthew's gospel in Koine Greek and you read Luke in Koine Greek, you see that they're written in a very, very different style. Luke tends to be a little bit more Roman and writes in a little more classical Greek. Matthew's writing, even though he's writing in Greek, looks a lot more really under the surface as something as far as the sayings and the patterns and the way he organizes his information in a way that is more Hebrew, shall we say. And he writes that he wrote this when Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome. Now I bring this to your attention before we jump into the text because really we live in an age which is influenced by an evolutionary worldview. And over the last 200 years, most of biblical scholarship has been influenced by this evolutionary worldview. That we came from apes, that we evolved, that God's not part of the picture. What you read about in the year of our Lord, the deism upon which basically America was based. That God, if he is present, you can't know him and he doesn't communicate to us. And much of biblical scholarship over the last two years and many of the commentaries are influenced by that. So when you read them, they're foundation is that the Bible is a man-made myth that has come out of ancient communities. And it is under that view and mindset that over the last 200 years, and only over really the last 200 years, that we've ignored the testimony of the church for the 1800 years prior and the earliest witnesses. And so there's many who say, we don't know who wrote this gospel. Could have been Matthew, could have been some other people, could have used a source called Q, and Matthew was written after Mark. And I raise that, brothers and sisters, just so as you come, you know what you're reading. Because I would say to you as we get ready to jump into this, if, and this is my conviction, if we let Matthew's gospel speak for itself, if you take the time, as I encourage you to do over the next few weeks, to read Matthew from beginning to end quickly, I believe what you will hear and what we will hear are the very words of God. The very words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us and to the early church through the Apostle Matthew. And given to us for a very particular, specific reason. Not as a myth, clearly. But given to us so that all disciples might know who Jesus is, And who his disciples are. 
who Jesus is and who his disciples are according to God's word. And I want to say that and make the distinction because we live in a time and era where uh, Jesus could be anybody under the sun. A friend, a guru, a yoga instructor, and likewise disciples. If you go into a Christian bookstore, you're going to see any flavor of the week as far as what it means to be a disciple or a Christian. And we see that in America today. But Matthew's burden and Matthew's concern under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that we would understand and appreciate who Jesus is, not according to our expectations or our experiences or our desires, but we would understand who Jesus is according to God's Word. And as a result, we would understand what our calling is and who we are as disciples, not according to what other people say, but according to God's Word. And God's Word for Matthew, really, there are two big sections that constitute God's Word for Matthew. The Old Testament Scriptures and Jesus' words. And as you read through Matthew's Gospel, you're going to see that Matthew repeatedly refers to the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, so that it would be fulfilled, so that it would be fulfilled. And he brings us back over and over and over again to the Old Testament scriptures. And then he also fills up this narrative of Jesus' life with Jesus' sermons. In fact, some people divide Matthew into five sections filled with five of Jesus' sermons. And some suggest that he is the new Moses who is coming and doing five books like there's five books of the Pentateuch. Now that is speculation, but nonetheless, as you go through, what you are going to see is that Matthew's gospel is filled with Old Testament references and the sermons of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he does so with this burden that we would hear from God himself who Jesus is. And he does this right from the opening words of his gospel, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Could I have my next slide, please? Is that doable? Okay. I want to give you a spoiler alert this morning, okay? This is an introduction to Matthew, so we're going to spend the rest of our time together going through this single verse, 1-1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because in the Bible, when you read the different books of the Bible, when you read their introductions, not infrequently, the authors will provide you with a nutshell of the entire book in those opening words. They'll provide you with the seed or the DNA or the blueprint of the entirety of the book in those first few words. And this is exactly, brothers and sisters, what Matthew does. And I'm going to put before you, I stole this, as I said before, from Dr. Grisanti because I liked how he did it. The big idea of this sermon this morning is that Matthew wrote this gospel, just like we said, so that we might know who Jesus is according to God's word. And part of your homework, if you have time, is to go and read that gospel and read how many times Matthew makes references to the Old Testament scriptures and also to Jesus' words by explanation. And why does Matthew do this? Well, for first century Jews, there was no higher authority, no higher proof, no higher witness than the Word of God. Very specifically, the Scriptures. If you were going to make any case about how you should live, when you should get a divorce, who you should eat with, what you should do, from the big things to the small things, there is one Supreme Court. And that one Supreme Court are the Old Testament Scriptures. And the tension and drama that begins to unfold in the Gospel of Matthew as you go through is the question, will first century Jews embrace Jesus as King based on God's Word? Will they accept Him as God's King based on God's Word? Or will they reject Jesus based on their own expectations, their own desires, and their own bias of what they want a king to be. And brothers and sisters, that is as relevant to us today in the 21st century as it was to those Jews living in the first century. And though we speak different languages, it's the same challenge every time we gather. 
Will we accept Jesus on His terms according to God's Word? Or will we reject that Jesus in favor of another Jesus who fits our expectations, our biasness, and our desires? One of the episodes of this old comedy that I used to watch growing up, which is now politically incorrect, Good Times with Kid Dynamite. One of the episodes is designated to a painter who paints an African-American Jesus and it becomes a hotbed of controversy in the home and a debate about how acceptable this is or not. But there's a universal principle there for us, brothers and sisters. Will we accept the Jesus of God's Word or will we accept the Jesus of our own expectations and desires? Well, Matthew addresses this when he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because each one of those words and each one of those titles, they all come from the Old Testament. He didn't come up with those on their own. And what Matthew's doing here with these words is he's throwing down a gauntlet, I believe. He's throwing down a challenge to anybody who reads this. And he's throwing a challenge from the Old Testament Scriptures and from all those titles and words that come from the Old Testament Scriptures. And the gauntlet he's throwing down is that according to God's Word, Jesus is no ordinary man or king. According to God's Word, he puts before us three truths about Jesus. That Jesus is, number one, God's King. Number two, Jesus is God's new beginning. And number three, Jesus is God's promise fulfilled. And I would subject to you, as you read through Matthew, Matthew's gospel is spent unpacking these three truths about Jesus. These are the three fundamental truths that Matthew walks us through. And it's all part of his big picture. Will you accept Jesus according to God's word? And that brings us to our our first point for this morning. Could I have my next PowerPoint, please? According to God's word, Matthew tells us Jesus is no ordinary man or king. Jesus is God's king, and he is the king of heaven. And because of that, we must respond to him accordingly. And we see this because with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew lets everyone know what this book and this gospel is all about. It's not about George Washington. It's not about William Shakespeare. It's not about your best life now. This book is about Jesus. But it's not about Jesus as a preacher or a wise man or a prophet or a leader, much of which the first century Jews would give Jesus that. Rabbi, teacher. They were more than willing to accept Jesus as all of those things. If Jesus had just wanted to come as a rabbi, he would not have been crucified. From the beginning, Matthew explains to us, this is a book about Jesus as the Christ. And as you go through Matthew's gospel, Matthew uses that term or that title, Christ, 17 times. And it's only the Apostle John who uses that title more. And in fact, the term, the separate term, king, Matthew uses that term, king, more than any other book in the New Testament. Matthew is serious about us understanding not only that Jesus is a king, but what type of king he is. That he's not a king like everybody else is a king. And for first century Jews who were living in Palestine and in the Roman Empire, as we said before, maybe their mother tongue was Aramaic. Hebrew was considered to be a dead language that was only used in the temple or the synagogue. But the language that they would use in trade and every day and that they would be raised in as well was what's known as Koine Greek. That was the lingua franca of the Roman Empire at that time. It was the equivalent of what we would say English is in our world today. And that title, Christ, or Christos, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christu, or Jesus Christ. The first century Jews would know that's not the title either of an ordinary man or king. In Koine Greek, that term Christos is a literal translation of the Hebrew word for anointed one. Or for the Hebrew word, Mashah, or Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. Now think of all the contemporary illustrations that we have. 
In all our literature and our hero stories, they're all revolving around a chosen one. That's Harry Potter. He's got the special mark on his forehead. And he's come to save everybody for all the evil that's in the world. Well, it's very derivative. Because when we come back to the Old Testament, there is this Hebrew word, Mashah, or Messiah, which literally means anointed one. And in Greek, Christos means anointed one. They are literal translations of one another. And this was a title originally in the Old Testament scriptures that was set apart exclusively for the use of a king who God had chosen himself. A king who God had chosen to lead, to serve, and to save God's people one way and one way alone. God's way, according to God's word. It's the reason why Saul and David, Saul fails the test. Saul is anointed, but he fails the test. Because he tries to lead God's people his way, rather than according to God's word. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. And we'll go to the second half of verse 12. And we'll see the context from which this term Messiah comes from. 1 Samuel 16, 12, in the second portion, verse B, it says, And the Lord said, Arise, he's speaking to Samuel, anoint him, for this is he. Now the context of this story, Saul has failed as king. Saul has not obeyed or listened to the Lord. He's used the kingship for himself. So God sends Samuel to a man named Jesse to look at his sons, to examine them and anoint them for who God's chosen king will be. And you'll recall, Jesse has seven sons, and Samuel goes down the line. And he thinks these are great looking boys who are great for the task. And each time he goes to the next one, God says, no, not this one, not this one, not this one. Is there not yet another? And David, the seventh son of Jesse, is out running around in the fields taking care of sheep. And he comes in and he probably stinks like nobody's business because he's been out in the field taking care of sheep. And the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, Meshach, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Okay, in the Old Testament, this act of being anointed with holy oil by the prophet or spokesman of God, By God's command, it was a symbol of everything that set apart God's king from the kings of this world. Drew a line. Think holiness, okay? And it showed three truths about the one who was being anointed and what set him apart from the kings of all the other nations. First, this was a king who was chosen by God, not by men. Kings of the other nation. You get that kingship by thuggery or by family. By ruling, conquering, and killing. No. This is neither a democracy, and it really isn't even a monarchy. If you were anointed, it showed that you were appointed to leadership because you were chosen by God according to His Word. Second, anointing demonstrated, just as we read, that this person who was chosen by God to lead was empowered by God, not by men. What qualified him to lead was the Spirit of God that rushed into David, that he was led by the Spirit of God and lived and led according to God's Word, not by his own whims or decisions or what worked best for himself. And thirdly, the one who was anointed was called to a very specific task by God. And that specific task, bottom line, It's to fulfill the Word of God. To fulfill the Word of God. Kings were called to write two copies of the law. One for themselves and one for the people. Their responsibility was to lead according to God's Word. Not by their special gifts. Not by their special talents. And very specifically, the anointed one, the one who was called to be king, was called to the specific task of mediating between God's people and God. 
Okay, it's not just a guy who's sitting on a throne. He was the mediator between God and man. He was called to be a servant leader. A servant leader. Now you'll see here what he was called to do was to do what Adam in the garden failed to do. He was to serve God and he was to serve God's people. Think Jesus saying, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Think Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Think Jesus saying to the disciples, don't behave or act like the kings of the world or the Gentiles, where it's all about them. The anointed one was called to serve God and serve God's people. How? By leading them according to God's word. That's how you're to serve. And finally, he was called to be a savior king. A savior king. Unlike the kings of this world who use other people's lives to serve and save themselves. That's what the American Revolution is all about, right? The king of England, all he does is take care of himself and squeeze those colonies for more money. Not God's king. If you were anointed, you belong to the Lord. And you were called to be a savior king. A savior king who would give his life to serve and to save God's people. And to serve and save God's people from the enemies of God. And how would he do it? Not his way. He would do it God's way. Not my will be done, Lord, but thy will be done. That's all, brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament. Written out. And David was really the prototype of that. And as we read through Matthew's Gospel, each step of the way, from Jesus' arrival, Matthew chapter 1 through 4, the coming of the King, through Matthew 5 through 16, the proclamation of the King, as Jesus demonstrates His kingship through His teaching and His kingly words and the miracles that He performs, through Matthew 17 through 28, Jesus' triumph. His triumph on the cross and then His resurrection. Matthew is showing us step by step, brothers and sisters, every step of the way that Jesus is this anointed King. Jesus is God's anointed King. He's the Messiah who does what no man and no king in Israel ever had done. And no man and no king in this world has ever done. Or could ever do. And He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he serves and leads and he shepherds God's people. And he's not about the expectations of men, but instead, he's obedient to God's word all the way to the cross. And then he rises from the dead on the third day, and he does it all in perfect fulfillment of God's written word and God's promises. And it's in this way that Matthew shows us that Jesus redeems and leads God's sheep out of the kingdom of sin and death, and He brings them into a new kingdom. A new kingdom with a new life and a new family and a new beginning, just as God had promised repeatedly throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus is no ordinary king. And brothers and sisters, as you read His sermons and you read the Gospel of Matthew, overwhelmingly, I believe as you see that, just ask your question, who speaks, who speaks like this? Who talks like this? Who does these things? There's no one in the Old Testament or the New Testament who does. He's set apart and he stands alone. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. And could I have my next PowerPoint slide? According to God's Word, Jesus is God's new beginning for God's people. According to God's Word, Jesus is God's new beginning for God's people. And this is what Matthew is showing us when he writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. For most of us, when we hear that term, genealogy, most of us, myself included, think of family trees, lists of names, and that's what you read in Matthew 2 through 17. But Jews living in the Roman Empire around 50 or 60 AD, when they would hear or read Matthew 1.1, they wouldn't read it, obviously, in English. They were reading it, as we said before, in Koine Greek, the universal language of the time. And in Koine Greek, those first words are, and I, I know I'm putting a lot of languages on you today, but there's a point that Matthew's getting at, okay? Biblos, genesis, Jesu Christu. That's the Greek. 
And for first century Jews, when they heard the words, the Koine Greek words, Biblos Genesis, it meant much more to them than a family tree. And this is because they were raised, the Bibles that they were raised with were referred to as the Septuagint. And maybe you've seen this. And the symbol for the Septuagint is the Roman numeral 70. And that's based on the story that allegedly this translation of the Hebrew Bible was collected by 72 Jewish scholars. So it's referred to as the 70 or the Septuagint. And at this time, this became the official or authorized Old Testament scripture for religious Jews. So when you go through the New Testament, many times when you read the apostles, many times the scriptures that they're quoting from are actually direct quotations from their Greek Bibles. The Septuagint. The Septuagint at that time was very much like the King James Bible was in the Western world for centuries. It was the authorized translation. And what first century Jews knew who were taught and raised with this scripture and they heard it in the synagogues on a weekly basis and this is what they used. When they heard that term Biblos Genesis, what would come to mind is the very first word of their Greek Bible, Genesis. Genesis, which was the title of the first book of the Bible where Moses provides an account of God's creation of the universe by his word in six literal days. And in the Septuagint, that word genesis or genesis, that title, does not mean specifically genealogy. It means origins or beginning, the beginning of the story. And what many first century Jews would recognize is those words, biblos genesis, that Matthew uses to begin this gospel are actually found in Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1 in their Greek Bibles. Now, I put it up there on the overhead and I'm just going to read to you from an English translation of the Septuagint. Genesis 2.4. This is the Biblos Genesis, the book of the generation or the book of origin or beginning of heaven and earth when they were made in the day in which the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. And Genesis 5.1, this is the Biblos Genesis. This is the book of the generation or origin or beginning of men in the day in which God made Adam. In the image of God, He made him. Male and female, He created them. And He blessed them and He named them Adam. Okay, where are we going with this? Bear with me for just a minute. Because Matthew is doing something incredibly profound and wonderful here. Most religious Jews would know that those words, Biblos, Genesis, the book of origins or beginning in Scripture, referred to a divine account An account given by God of what only God can do. Those words, Biblos Ganesa, show up in Genesis at pivotal points where Moses is coming in, in, in and saying God is stepping into the picture in the story and he's creating a new beginning. He's doing what only God can do. He's creating a new life, a new family, a new creation, a new beginning in the story. And he's doing so for his people. And he's giving a new creation that changes everything. And it's changing everything according to his word. New Testament scholars, Davies and Allison write, By opening this book with another book's title, they're talking about Matthew opening this gospel, with another book's title, Genesis, Matthew almost certainly intended to set up the story of Jesus as a counterpoint to the story of of Genesis. Now hopefully all our studies in Genesis and Romans pay off because the Apostle Paul saw this in exactly the same way. And the reason the Apostle Paul gets so excited about the gospel in Romans 5, which we studied earlier, is because he's saying all the testimony of Scripture, Old Testament and New, points to the fact 
That Jesus is the new and better Adam who has come to break and set us free from this terrible world of sin by giving us a completely new beginning that we can't give or obtain for ourselves. None of our prayers, our religion, none of the old covenant can do. Jesus has come to do this. He's come to set you free and He has done it. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Matthew shows every step of the way in his gospel. In Matthew 9, 17, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, show up to Jesus and his disciples. And they can't figure out, they're fasting, and they're saying, we fast, and the religious leaders fast, and the Pharisees fast. What are you doing, Jesus, having all these great meals and going to all these parties and celebrating and being together with sinners and tax collectors? Why are you celebrating when really good religious Jews of the Old Testament, Old Testament, excuse me, are fasting? And what does Jesus say in explanation? He tells them in Matthew 9:17, "New wine is not put in old wine skins. You need to put new wine into fresh wine skins. If you put new wine into old wine skins, those wine skins are going to burst and you're going to have a mess." And there's this tension that goes on through the entirety of Matthew's gospel with the Pharisees and the religious Jews. They don't like Jesus' new gospel. They don't like Jesus' new teaching. And what becomes clear is their expectation and desire is simply a better version of the old. A better version of the old. And they're actually offended by the new beginning in the gospel and the new covenant that Jesus has come to bring. Well, there's a relevant point for us, brothers and sisters. How often when it comes to what Jesus is doing in your life? How often when it comes to what Jesus is doing in our lives? Are we disappointed? Because our expectation and desire is simply for a better version or an update of the old. And brothers and sisters, that's the entire prosperity gospel. Worship Jesus and you get a better wife, a better church, a better car, a better job. It's a better now. And sadly, brothers and sisters, that's a lot of American Christianity. And when we shepherd folks in biblical counseling, they're disappointed. I prayed like the Pharisees, I studied like the Pharisees, I did this, that, and the other, and I don't have a better marriage. I don't have a better house. I don't have a better job, and we're disappointed. And then the belief is, well, God didn't work. And yet many times, brothers and sisters, what we miss is God is doing something in Jesus completely different and new, and it starts on the inside. And it doesn't start first with your marriage or your church or your friends and relationships. Brothers and sisters, it starts with a completely new heart. A new heart that is filled with a new life and a new kingdom that is all about, brothers and sisters, getting rid of your old life. And there lies the tension. God sent His Son, brothers and sisters, to die for more than just an update or an improvement on the old or to fulfill our old expectations and desires. Jesus came, brothers and sisters, and He died on the cross to set us free from what has ensnared sinners throughout the history of the world and what we so desperately need to give us a radical and completely new beginning, not according to our expectations and desires, brothers and sisters, but according to God's Word. And one person in the New Testament who got that was a religious Jew named Saul of Tarsus who saw the risen Lord and was radically saved and became the Apostle Paul. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And those words that Paul says, he gets it. And it's a powerhouse as we think of how we shepherd those who have had histories of abuse, those who have come out of past where there has been fallenness and brokenness, those who are struggling and ensnared with sin, 
It's the good news that Jesus has come into your life not to give you an easier or better life. He's come to give you a completely new beginning. A new beginning according to God's word. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Could I have my next slide, please? According to God's word, Jesus Christ is God's fulfillment of all God's promises. According to God's word, Jesus Christ is God's fulfillment of all God's promises. In Matthew 1.1, which we've read multiple times this morning, Matthew gives three titles for Jesus that he wants us to know Jesus. The way in which he wants to know Jesus. First is the Christ. The second is the son of David. And the third is the son of Abraham. And in many ways, that summarizes what you'll walk through as you go through the Gospel of Matthew. First century Jews would recognize each one of these titles, and they would know that each one of them comes directly from the Old Testament. And not just from the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, each one comes directly from a promise of God. A promise from God, or what's called a covenant, a promise of God to His people for how He was going to save them. How was God going to save them? Well, God would give His people promises. This is how I'm going to save you and you're going to know because there's no better guarantee of a promise being kept than it's given by God Himself according to the Word. And each one of these promises, brothers and sisters, provided a new beginning for the people to whom they were given. And the first promise was given to a godless idolater from Ur of the Chaldeans, which presently is Turkey or Syria or Iraq, and that nexus there. It was given to a godless idolater from Ur of the Chaldeans who was unable to have children. His name was Abram. And the second promise was given to a shepherd boy, in Bethlehem, who we've already met, the seventh son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah, whose name was David. And these promises that the Lord gave to them changed everything. If you have your Bibles, have a look at 2 Samuel 7 8. 2 Samuel 7 8, and we'll go to the second half of the verse. 2 Samuel 7 8b. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he's talking to David, King David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the Davidic covenant. And here God promises to King David a seed and a son through whom God will build not an ordinary kingdom, but a forever kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. Because only kingdoms from heaven will last forever. Every kingdom of man will come to an end. And this will be the eternal throne, the eternal kingdom. Why? Because its king will be God's king. The king of God's word. Now, if you would, go with me back to Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And we'll go to God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 12.1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here God promises to give Abram a new life, a new beginning, and to make of Abram a great nation, a great name, and a great blessing to all the families of the earth. How? It's all contingent on giving to Abram, who is unable to have children, a son, a son of promise, And a son who is a miracle. 
And the first son, as you know, is Isaac. When first century Jews heard the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram, I believe they immediately knew that Matthew was claiming this is no ordinary book and Jesus is no ordinary man. Matthew is claiming and he's throwing down the gauntlet. This book is the word of God, just like Genesis is the word of God. Same, same authority, same power, same spirit. Deal with that. And he's throwing down the gauntlet that not only is this God's word that he's giving us, But it's God's Word that's revealing to us what God has done to fulfill these promises. What God has done to give His people a new beginning, a new king, just as He promised in His Word to David and to Abram. And as first century Jews read Matthew 1-3 through 3 and go through all the genealogies, Matthew shows them that Jesus is in fact the son of David. He's of royal lineage. And as they come to the end... Matthew 28. They read that through Jesus' death and His resurrection, Jesus has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. And He gives a great commission to His disciples to go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. Matthew's Gospel begins with Jesus as the son of David. And it ends as the son of Abram. Or Abraham. Through whom his death and resurrection, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How will they be blessed? It's not just a better church, a better car, a better family. It's that in his name there is forgiveness of sin. In his name... All sin, past, present, and future is forgiven in His name because of His death on the cross and His atonement for our sin. There is hope to be a new creation and a new person with a new father and a new family and a new community and a new life that is all anchored in one person, one person alone. Jesus Christ, the anointed, the Messiah. For first century Jews, for many of them, this was incredibly good news. Because they were well aware with the Roman occupation that their sin and their disobedience to God's word over the centuries had ruined their relationship with God. It had ruined their relationship with one another. That's what all the Old Testament prophets are about when you go and read through them. It had ruined their marriages. That's why all the Pharisees are coming to Jesus on a regular basis to say, how can I get a divorce? When is it good to get a divorce? It had ruined their families. It had ruined their lives. They were well aware that things were not good. And they were well aware that they needed a new beginning. And for those who were willing to receive the testimony of God's word, this was good news. Because in Jesus, finally the promises had come home and were being fulfilled. And that in Jesus, there was a new beginning, a new life, and a new kingdom. And Jesus had come and died to bring them into that. But brothers and sisters, it wasn't good news for everyone. We read this morning, Ted read to us about the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, like the Pharisees, was an example of someone whose expectations and desires of Jesus was that Jesus would provide something a little better than he already had. And when he discovered that he had to leave his old expectations and desires, and he had to leave his old life if he was going to have this new beginning, he decided that his old life of incredible wealth and religious stature in the synagogue and the temple was too good to leave. And Mark tells us Jesus loved him, but he let him go. And so, brothers and sisters, that comes to us this morning. Are we simply people looking for a better version of the old? Or by faith, brothers and sisters, 
Will you receive Jesus for who He is according to God's Word? God's new King, God's new beginning, and the fulfillment of all of God's promises for His people. Brothers and sisters, humor me for one last word. Most of us here know what it means to be an immigrant. America is a country of immigrants. And the reason our fathers or forefathers came to this country was for a new beginning. And that's what defines America around the world. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the land of opportunity where marriages and jobs and careers and educations offer everyone an opportunity for a new start and a new beginning. There is nothing wrong, brothers and sisters, with a good education. There is nothing wrong with a good job. And there's nothing wrong with a good career. But what Matthew points out is those kingdoms will come and go. But there's only one kingdom in which you will truly have a new beginning. The new beginning every man so desperately needs. A new beginning that starts with a new heart and a new life that is free from sin. And certainly, brothers and sisters, as we look at the news in Afghanistan and the world around us, we see it's the same old story happening over and over again. Matthew's plea, I believe, in his message is that the hope, brothers and sisters, whether you're a big sinner or a little sinner, whether you've got a good job or a bad job, whether you've got a good marriage or a bad marriage, there is hope for a new beginning, brothers and sisters. But that hope is found in one place and one place alone. And it's not found in your job, it's not found in your career, it's not found in your friends, and it's not found in your education. It's found in Jesus as the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a gift you've given us. And I just pray for every person who's here and every person who's listening. Lord Jesus, even as the words of Charles Wesley exhorted us earlier this morning, would each person here discover the joy and the beauty of what it means to know you as the new beginning of their lives. In your name we pray. Amen.